It's time for the Rick Smith Show. Now, here is the voice of the working class, Rick Smith. And welcome, brothers, sisters, working class heroes. This is the Rick Smith Show. Thanks so much for being here today on the big program. Lots to get to. Lots to talk about. You know, I'm a huge supporter of manufacturing, huge supporter of domestic production for domestic consumption. Want to make it here. Want to build it here. We consume it here. Want the jobs here. The one thing that I'm absolutely 110% opposed to is abusing child labor. And this is the part where uh, my Republican friends just don't seem to get it. There's an opportunity as we're reshoring manufacturing, there's an opportunity to put everybody to work. There's an opportunity to bring people here to this country who want to seek a better life and get them get them to work. We can do that. And we don't have to go into the schools and pluck children out of the classrooms to fill our cheap labor needs. Don't have to do it. There is a better way, but... Well, sadly, our Republican friends in states all across the country are rolling back child labor laws because we we need we we need the cheap labor. We need we need the cheap labor. Sorry, you know we we just we're, we're addicted to it. Got to have it. So when I see stories like this one coming out of Mississippi, I get mad, I get angry, I get frustrated because we can do better. We should do better. We have to do better. Sixteen-year-old Guatemalan child the article that i'm reading says worker no this is a 16 year old child uh but they 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 put it as the 16 year old mississippi poultry plant worker no no it's a child 16 year old kid working in a poultry plant died on the job back in july uh to in a place where uh, have had a history of, of lots of, of injuries, lots of accidents, lots of things happening to working people. Uh, in fact, over the last uh, you know several years, there have been numerous, uh, numerous, numerous fines. This is a place, what was it, in the past five decades, uh, they've inspected the, uh, the, the five plants that, that are in this Marjax little conglomerate uh, 23 times in the past decade. 23 times in the last 10 years. Uh, three inspections following a worker's death. Cited 10 times. $102,000, almost $103,000 in fines. But this one, a kid dies. And what's a child, what's a 16-year-old Guatemalan child's life worth? Well, $212,666. Uh, that's what the fine was. That's what it was. So, uh, yeah. Two hundred twelve thousand. And I gotta tell you, it's, it's more than than than, than that has been in the past. Uh, OSHA cited Marjack with fourteen serious violations and three others that were less than serious. You know, one of the big ones being that they had no uh, lockout tagout procedures, that they failed to ensure that there were barriers in place so that the workers went into the machinery, they didn't just start so that they didn't get killed on the job. This kind of a a thing. Uh, they're also going after the staffing agency. And this is another part of this. Because you've got the company, this Marjax, who you, these this this 16-year-old child didn't actually work for them. Worked for a staffing agency who worked for them. So there's this, you know, the well, we didn't know we the child was only 16. That's on them. And that's the reason that we have such screwed up laws in this country to benefit corporate America and why we need a complete revamping of our labor laws from top to bottom, from child to senior. But here you got this kid working at the poultry plant and now you know, a fine for the company. Nobody going to jail. Trust me, nobody's, nobody, nobody's sweating that out. But you have the Department of Labor, and this is why I'm a, such a big supporter of Joe Biden. His labor department. Uh, their wage and hour division. They're the folks who enforce child labor laws, in case you don't know. Uh, they have had a task force 
that's been been looking at the reason we've been hearing a lot about child labor violations is because of this task force that's been out there going, hey, it seems like a lot of kids are working, especially in the poultry industry. You may remember what was it? It was over the summer. You had that Packers Sanitation Solutions Incorporated somewhere like Wisconsin, Midwest. Uh, they they were fined, what was it, I think a million and a half bucks for illegally hiring more than 100 children to work in their plants. And it's been, it's been said that the meatpacking industry in this country would collapse without child labor. Think about that for a second. The meat, the food you put on your table, the children's hands that go into this. It's angering to think that this is this is the system that we've allowed to get set up around us. Now, this task force is and look, every day I see something. Uh, they are out there going a full full. You know what to the wall? Because we have to stop this. Now, understand, you've got Biden and the task force saying, hey, we got to we got to crack down on this stuff. While simultaneously, you've got Republicans like in Indiana, for instance. No, no, go ahead at 14 and quit school and go work in that industrial farm. No, no. By all means, go to work in Florida. Don't worry. Go, go, go work in construction at, at 14, 15, 16. Don't worry about an education. And you look at these red states, because again, you know, it's got to get those kids a little skin in the game. This is not who we are. Now, again, and, 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 and let me add the caveat. Uh, I'm not talking about your children or mine. When we're talking about the children that are, are working in these jobs, especially in these poultry plants and on these construction jobs, these are these are minority children. These are poor children. These are immigrant children. But they're children much the same. And I would love to see some people get, I don't know, a little little worked up about the fact that we're abusing children and exploiting children in the workforce for, for profit, for the handful to get richer, for shareholders to pocket more. Just kind of throwing it out there. Want to hear your thoughts? Email me, rick at the ricksmithshow.com. Quick break. Right back. Smith, and this is Labor History in Two. On this day in labor history, the year was 1909. That was the day the United States Supreme Court decided the case Moyers versus Peabody. The case grew out of the Colorado labor wars, a series of back-to-back strikes in 1903 and 1904 in the precious metals mines and ore mills. The Colorado National Guard meted out violent assaults, arrests, and deportations against strikers, often on orders from Colorado Governor James Peabody. The state militia routinely rounded up strikers and union leaders, detained them for weeks in bullpens, and ignored their habeas corpus petitions. Western Federation of Miners President Charles Moyer arrived in Telluride during a strike to find these repressive conditions. He signed a poster that read, Is Colorado in America? The poster included an image listing the many violations of basic democratic rights on the American flag. Moyer was arrested in March of 19. For desecration of the American flag on the poster. He was detained on the grounds of military necessity, even after the courts ordered his release. His case traveled through the state and federal courts until the Supreme Court ruled. They held that the governor and officers of a state National Guard, acting in good faith and under authority of law, may imprison without probable cause a citizen of the United States in times of insurrection and deny that citizen the right of hate. Corpus. The ruling radicalized the labor movement. Many concluded there could be no justice through the court system. A later case successfully challenged the ruling on the basis that the claims of insurrection were subject to judicial review. The ruling, however controversial, still stands today and was invoked after 9-11 in the 2004 ruling Hamdi versus Rumsfeld. For more information, go to laborhistoryin2.com, like us on Facebook, follow us on Twitter at laborhistoryin2. So recently I, I had this um, this very interesting, bizarre conversation with uh, <laughs> a, a listener who, who has an interesting view. Interesting view that uh, um, they, whoever they are, and I'm sure got this from, from Donald Trump, uh, but they 
are going to turn our entire military electric. We're going to have electric tanks, evidently, and the electric tanks are going to get like a mile and a half per charge, and we're going to have to have vehicles that charge the electric tanks, and it's going to be this whole electric tank charging thing, and we're we're going to we're going to lose wars because because of the Green New Deal that 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 Joe Biden signed, a whole bunch of this this fantasy stuff. And I know where this comes from. Uh, about a year, a little over a year ago, Donald Trump, you know, just spewed this out um, at one of the rallies. And if you watch the rallies, there's a lot of made up stuff on the on the moment that you know, nobody really fact checks much anymore. This is one of the things that got fact checked, and it's total BS. But it's amazing how people then, it, it if Donald Trump said it, it's got to be true. It's like the internet. If it's there, it's got to be true. And here to share some thoughts on, are we going to have an EV military? Will we have an electric military? And, you know, will we have all Chinese-made EVs? Because evidently, if you remember a couple months ago, uh, Donald Trump said that the uh, the auto workers were being sold down the river by their leadership, and their leadership should endorse him because EVs are going to be made in China and whole bunch of craziness. And that's why I've asked our good friend Scott Paul to come help me work through this this pile of insanity. Scott, thanks for taking time for us. Hey, Rick. Good to be with you. Um, you're the you're the guy. You're the manufacturing guy, head of yeah. the Alliance for American Manufacturing. You're the guy who has your, your thumb on the pulse. You're the guy who it's your job to keep up on the latest, the, the greatest, the news of the day. Are we going to have electric tanks? Is this the future of our military that... You know, we're going to have green tanks. Is that, is that going to happen? Yeah. You know, Rick, it all I all I have to say is the United States has always been a great innovator when it comes to making sure we have a modern, superior uh, military, including the vehicles. So while we may have some research going on that looks at how you can incorporate things like uh, batteries with a lot of storage life or what have you, that doesn't equate to making all of our tanks run on batteries <laughs> in, you, you know, within, within the next five or 10 years. Okay. So, it, and in fact, it would be kind of criminal if the Department of Defense and the research agencies weren't looking at how you employ kind of like new forms of energy uh, into uh, in, into your weapon systems and into your battle planet, um, you know, down the road. But that's neither here nor there, because what happens is someone takes a nugget from something and then turns it into something else. And all of a sudden you have this big blown up conspiracy. But no, our, our tanks are going to run what they're going to run, you know, what they're running on now uh, for the foreseeable future, future, unless and until there is a better way uh, to get them from point A to point B. Yeah, but this I know where this this came from. This comes from uh, this comes from one of Donald Trump's speeches, you know, yeah. uh, at one of those rallies where he just stands there for hours and just makes stuff up. Uh, I mean, you know, it's and, and our our mainstream media, they they just kind of let it roll off where, you know, like recently he said, "Well, you know, we're going to be in the when we win, we're going to be in the White House for 4 years and beyond." And, mm-hmm. and, you know, that didn't really catch anyone's attention other than to go, well, no, and beyond means we break the, uh, uh, the, the, the two-term thing. That, 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 that doesn't happen. Yeah. <laughs> but, you know, we, we just right. kind of let that, we let a lot slide uh, with the Red Hat Brigade. And, and that's what's frightening to me. Well, it is in part because everybody else is held to a different standard. Uh, you know, one and done for everybody else. Um, but when there is such a wave of misinformation or disinformation or inaccuracies coming at you not only every day, but every hour, uh, you get selective about it and say, well, this is not as bad as that. And, and you, you play that game and that's the wrong approach. Right. Uh, you gotta, you gotta, you gotta be, you can't let the Pinocchio test get broken. You know, you gotta, so with that in mind, Yes. Uh, with that in mind, because yeah. I, I got to go back to, again, this idea that Trump has, has put out that, you know, all the EVs are going to be made in China and, and, you know, almost no point in doing it because the auto workers are not going to have any jobs. Uh, the, all the EVs are going to be made in China. Is, is that accurate? And, and is that is that a mandated future? Is that, you know, is that written in stone somewhere that our auto workers can't make electric vehicles? 
Uh, it is not, but I tell you what, we will have a Chinese future in this if there is no industrial policy in the United States. Um, and, and I'll tell you why. I mean, right now and up until very recently, the largest electric vehicle company in the world was Tesla, which was homegrown and, in fact, funded by Department of Energy uh, research grants at the very beginning. Uh, notwithstanding Elon Musk's perceived brilliance in all of this, it was actually uh, DOE uh, grants and loans that helped Tesla really, really get a foothold and become the largest EV company in the world. However, you know China has invested steadily and heavily in this uh, over the last uh, decade or more, uh, and has a couple of homegrown companies of it of its own, and has a lot of capacity. Now the issue is this. Um, people are buying electric vehicles. Uh, it is exponentially more than it was five years ago, and five years ago was exponentially more than it was the five years before that. And this is going to continue to grow whether people want it to or not. It's something that's just going to, it's going to happen. Yep. The only question here is where are these vehicles going to be made? Okay, that is the only question, not whether they're going to be made, but where are they going to be? And if we have tariffs, as uh, you know, Biden has kept in place on Chinese electric vehicles, 27 and a half percent. If we have an industrial policy that helps to get this industry turbocharged in the United States so that it's more than Tesla, so that it is, you know, GM and Ford and all the other entrants, Rivian and all the other makers who want to come make their vehicles here, uh, or creating the ecosystem or the charging infrastructure for that. Um, that's what gets us in the game because if we don't, this is what's going to happen. And and this is unfortunately what what Trump doesn't say. It's not like all the internal combustion engine uh, factories in the United States are going to stay. Um, no. They, they will go and, and they will go as these super cheap Chinese vehicles come into the United States and overtake the market. And um, I'm just going to say, not on my watch, yeah. not going to happen. And so that's why we need uh, the right combination of policies. And while Trump does, I think, get the tariff aspect of this, he doesn't get the other stuff. Uh, and, and he's completely wrong about it and the type of impact it would have on our economy i mean he's right in the fact that the auto workers won't have jobs if we if we do what he wants to do yeah. uh, and and you know for me the idea of, of of moving to electric vehicles i'm all in favor of it uh, i know people who have them uh they're fabulous um you know in fact you know i've driven in one once and um much much quicker much faster um you know it i'd like one yeah, <laughs> uh, to be quite yeah. frank, uh, I, I, but yeah. it, it is the future, as you've said, and I want it to be built here. Yeah, and and I don't think that's hard to say. And I've said before, you know, domestic production for domestic consumption. This should be our policy. Yeah, uh, and, yeah. and and look, yeah, I, I just want to say, you know, it's not like the government is going to come take away people's internal combustion engines or whatever the hell. No, it's the, like the anything. It's gonna it's gonna eventually right. go away. Yeah. Yeah, but it will, um, as folks discover the performance, as they get the batteries better, as they get the charging infrastructure built out, um, it's going to be great because, look, I drive, you said, you you know, I we have a Chevy Volt, which is a hybrid, but we use it mostly for commuting, and I put about three gallons of gas in it the whole year, um, and that is a great feeling, <laughs> I will say, when, when you're not doing it. It, it is awesome, and so... People will discover that, and they'll discover it, by the way, not through Chevy Volts or Teslas, but through Ford F-150 pickup trucks and the SUVs and the other stuff that, that Americans love to buy. Um, and those prices will be coming down. And, the, and again, the, the infrastructure will be in place. But here's the issue. If we stop all of that, it's not like it's going to go away, and it will be Chinese, guaranteed. Go. And it will go. be directly from China, or it will be Chinese companies that are setting up factories in Mexico to take advantage of the U.S.-Mexico free trade agreement, and they'll be coming to the United States through the back door that way. We, I, I don't want that to happen. I think that's an existential threat 
uh, to the manufacturing ecosystem. I absolutely agree with you. And talking about manufacturing, uh, I got to tell you, I'm I'm a big Joe Biden fan. I think uh, I think he is doing something that that no president in my lifetime has done, and that's turning the tide of uh, of of losing manufacturing jobs and losing our our ability to uh, to have manufacturing as a a key component of our GDP. In fact, it's been a long a long downward trend of of manufacturing's uh, share of GDP. Uh, you know, some of the analysis that I've looked at going back into the early 2000s, we've been losing uh, share. You know, I think it was back then it was manufacturing accounted for like 13 percent of GDP. Uh, by 2020, it was down to almost a little over 10 percent. Uh, Biden's turning that around through massive investments. I mean, I was looking at some numbers um, in, in October of 23. We saw almost 19 billion dollars going into the construction of manufacturing plants in this country and that's up 73 percent from the october of 2022 up 136 percent from 21 up 166 percent from 19 and you, know, you, you just look at the month over month increases that are just staggering and it comes back to it's the it's the policies of this administration that have finally having an industrial policy and investing in this stuff that's bringing and reshoring this manufacturing back to our shores. That's right. And, and let, let's just stipulate that this is not accidental and it's not cyclical. It is directly the result of policy. And and that policy is to make sure that we're investing in the industries of today and of tomorrow. Uh, and it's having an impact. As you indicate, we've stabilized uh, under this administration. Uh, this is the first time kind of post-World War II that we've actually added more manufacturing jobs back than we lost during a recession that, that occurred during the pandemic. So, so that's number one. Number two, to your point on construction, We've seen a construction boom in manufacturing facilities, unlike anything we've seen uh, in our in our lifetimes, either of our lifetimes. And um, if if and Rick, let me just say this: like you know, you're in Pennsylvania. I I I was raised in the Midwest. If you would have asked someone, you know, any time over the last 20 years, whether you thought that there'd be a massive factory built in the United States that employed 2,500 new people somewhere everybody would be like, that's not happening. They're all closing down. And, and so, but that's exactly what's happening. Not in one location in the United States, but in dozens. And it's in semiconductors, in batteries, in solar panels, in lots of other industries as well. And it's directly the result of this policy of we're having tariffs uh, on the outside um, that are helping to level the playing field and investment on the inside that's helping to build that workforce back up, that's helped help to offset the cost of capital that it takes to get those enterprises up and running and to create a market for all of it through consumer incentives. Uh, and it's having a profoundly positive impact on manufacturing in this country. How come we aren't hearing about this? You know, I, I say this to people and they're like, oh, no, 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 there's there's none of this happening. You're, you're just making this up. And I'm going, no, the, the data is there. Yeah. It, you know, the numbers are there. It's all there. You can see these places being built. Um, yeah. You know, I, I keep saying the administration needs to build a website like Josh Shapiro did here in Pennsylvania when the, when the bridge went out of these buildings being built. You know, maybe with a yeah. big Joe Biden Biden image of you know him pointing going I did that you can click on little images of factories being built I don't know some kind of cute little gimmicky thing to draw people it. to to be able to see this stuff actually happening in real time because yeah. I don't think I don't think the message is getting out yeah I agree with you I mean like there's a website it's invest.gov you can go there and there's a map and you can see where a bunch of this stuff is happening and it's just the primary stuff it's not even the secondary stuff and it would be awesome if you could click on those little dots and get not only the information, but like a live webcam of, of the construction taking place or what, whatever. So those free idea for, for the Biden administration right there from the Rick Smith show. And there Scott you go. Paul. And, um, and, and yeah. Not new. I've been saying this for a very long time. We, we, you, you need to, you need to get the PR out there because, uh, or, you know, big giant, you know, 20 foot cutouts yeah. of Biden going, I did that. Yeah. Uh, Cause look, you know, got an election coming out. Uh, yeah. Need some attention to this because because look and this is the point. Uh, the point is is you know November of 2024, 
uh, if Biden isn't reelected, and this is where my view on this is, you don't have to share it, all this stuff can go away. All of the policies, all of these investments, all of this stuff that we've we've chosen, this direction that we've chosen can all go away. Yeah. Look, I, 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 you know, we don't have to, you know, regardless of who you support as a candidate, if you look at the policies and the Republicans wanting to defund the, the clean energy, the EV, some of the other stuff, and to just basically level off infrastructure, you will see all of that decline. There is no question about it because it is very policy driven. And to your point about no one knowing, I mean, we, we polled uh, through Morning Consult uh, voters over the summer, have you heard of a factory, a new factory being built in your community? And only about 30% of people said yes, even though there, there's more than that. Have you heard of one being built anywhere in America, a new one? And 36% said yes. So there's a lot of people who need to know about this and to understand that it's happening. And I just know from my, you know, my road trip that I took over the summer, I saw, you know, the the, the Ford uh, factory being built just off the interstate outside of Memphis, uh, down in Texas, I saw a semiconductor factory being built just off the interstate there. Outside of Phoenix, I saw a, uh, another semiconductor factory being built just out of there. And it was just on and on and on like that. Uh, all across the United States. And so it is a, but but yeah, it's one of those repetition things, Rick, where unfortunately, you know, whether it's the White House or whomever, you're like, oh, we had a great press conference on this. You know, let's wrap it up and move on to the next thing. No, got to hammer this stuff every day yep. and remind people what you're doing for them. And and the good news, Rick, there's no shortage of sites for the, for the president to go to in Pennsylvania or Ohio or Michigan or Wisconsin, uh, where there is, uh, or North Carolina or Georgia, where there is some of this new construction taking place. There is a great story for them to, to tell uh, if, if, they, if, the, if they choose to focus on Yeah, from, from now to Election Day, every day at a new place that's being built, that jobs are being created and lives are being made better. I, I don't know what better you can do uh, as a re-election campaign. But, Scott, as always, appreciate the information, appreciate the expertise. Thanks so much. Rick, great to be with you as always. Our good friend Scott Paul, president of the Alliance for American Manufacturing, AmericanManufacturing.org, the website. Want to hear your thoughts. Have you heard of, do you know of, have you seen a new facility being built? Are you working at one? I want to hear it. Email me, Rick at the RickSmithShow.com. If you're watching on our free speech TV, by all means, come back tomorrow uh, for our radio affiliates. We're going to take a quick break. Back after this. I'm Rick Smith, and this is Labor History in Two. Have you ever worn a union button or T-shirt to work? On this day in labor history, the year was 1912. Members of the Australian Tramways Association in Brisbane, Queensland, decided to put on their union badges at work. The men operated and maintained the city's public transport system. For months before the action, their manager, an American named Joseph Stillman Badger, had banned wearing the badges. He wanted to thwart the union from growing in numbers. Before noon that day, the workers gathered together and donned their union badges by affixing them to their watch chains. And for that, they were promptly suspended from their jobs. They were told they could return to work if they took off the badges. The workers refused. That night, 10,000 people gathered in the city's market square in a rally to support the workers. The next day, 25,000 workers walked off the job and marched through the streets. A general strike was called for January 30th. 43 unions supported the strike. The police violently attempted to disband the strikers on February 2nd, a day known in Australia as Black Friday. Perhaps the most remembered event in the strike occurred when the famous feminist Emma Miller stuck her hat pin into the rump of the police chief's horse. The horse reared and sent him tumbling to the ground. The strike wore on for five weeks before it faded. At the end of February, the tramway employees were officially granted the right to wear their badges. But the company refused to hire back striking workers. 
The events at Brisbane were an important stand for free speech and the right to form a union. A question for today is, how far would you be willing to go to show your union pride? Labor History in Two brought to you by the Illinois Labor History Society and the Rick Smith Show. For more information, go to laborhistoryin2.com. In cities all across America, an infiltration of wealthy investors, developers, and bankers is driving poor and middle-class families out of their own towns. What's at work here is the relentless financial shove of high-dollar gentrification. House by house, block by block, moneyed interests suddenly and often secretly buy up properties bulldozing modest family homes to erect sprawling edifices for the rich. It's a profiteering money grab that intentionally prices out regular home buyers. Worse, it also artificially skyrockets property taxes for the area's longtime homeowners, forcing them to sell out and leave town. This financial whirligig is enormously destructive to a community's crucial sense of fairness and, well, community. For example, look at who likely does not live in your city. School teachers, firefighters, police, nurses, utility crews, and others who are essential to making any city work. If the so-called free market can't or won't provide affordable spaces so these families can come home where they belong, then the community itself must step up to meet the need with creative public initiatives. The good news is that many cities are doing just that, including where I live. Fed up with losing teachers who endure spirit-sucking hour-long commutes from distant suburbs, Austin School Board recently created its own affordable housing arm. It's starting to build hundreds of rental homes affordable to teachers, cafeteria workers, bus drivers, and other school employees. In addition, the district has formed a public facility corporation that partners with local groups like Habitat for Humanity to build and sell family homes at prices within the reach of the city's school employees. This is Jim Hightower saying, housing is not only a basic human need, but a community essential that can't be left to the whims and greed of developers. Welcome back to the Rick Smith Show. Now, here is Rick Smith. So, uh, interesting, you know, for at least a day, uh, there was there was lots of news around Kentucky. And and look, I got I to gotta be honest, uh, when I saw this story, it, it kind of stumped me a little bit because I thought marrying first cousins was not illegal. I thought it was like a Kentucky pastime. I thought it was, I thought it was normal. I, I didn't know it was illegal. Did did you know it was illegal in Kentucky? I did not. So when a, a Republican introduced a bill that would have legalized marrying first cousins, I'm like, huh. One, didn't know. Two, kind of surprised. Um, but should I be? Uh, anyway, here to share some thoughts on maybe maybe this is the new way. Maybe Republicans are finally... You know, coming out and saying who they are. And that's why I've asked our good friend Sarah Burris to come share some thoughts. Sarah's a reporter over at Raw Story, rawstory.com, the website, if you want to check out the work that she does. Sarah, thanks for taking time for us. Rick, how the heck are you? I'm good. So are, are you with me on this? I, I got to tell you, I always thought it was it was perfectly legal in, in Kentucky. In fact, you know, most of the stories, most of the jokes, most of the stereotypes are, or is this just being... Uh, I don't. I don't know how to how to say it. It's not. It's not racist. Kentuckyist. Uh, could, could this just me being Kentuckyist? Well, I mean, I grew up thinking about that in terms of Arkansas, um, and I don't know if it's just based on where you're from. Ohio, so, so like, Kentucky, right there on the border. Right. Yeah. It's okay. Yeah. Um, so this guy, uh, he he actually uh, he, he won Survivor. I guess he's a reality star. And yeah, because those are the people we want in, in the halls of power. Right. Sure. Clearly, it worked out so well for the presidency. Uh, so this guy was on Survivor. He ran for office unopposed, I will add, um, when another Republican retired in 23. So he's been in office for a little bit. But this is really his first, He, you know, full, big, huge session. And his flagship bill is he was going to legalize uh, incest with your cousin, your first cousin. And 
And obviously, like this is the first thing that I saw um, in the morning whenever I got up and, and saw the news and it exploded quickly over the internet. It was everywhere. And right. And very quickly the dude comes out and, and he's like, Oh, uh, I, I just wrote this wrong. That's not what I meant at all. <laughs> and his, so, so how did he, so how, how did, how did you write it so that it came out wrong? And, and, and why did those words come out of your, out of your pen? And this is my question too. So the, his intention was to have a law where it expanded uh, incest to not just be about sex, but include touching, groping, you know, other forms of non-consensual contact. Um, what is strange to me is he said in the drafting process, he had taken out cousins, first cousins, and then he forgot to add it back in. And my question is then, wait, why? <laughs> why then, like, if you're adding, like, it, okay, so you should we you be should we be wrong. hunting down his first cousins? Uh, you know, I, I, my first question is, I started like looking through his Facebook, and be like, what's his <laughs> wife look like? <laughs> Do they look similar? Um, <laughs> right, like that, and and that was a lot of the mockery online too. Was just be like, well, this guy clearly like tried to get with his cousin and couldn't make it happen. Um, so, but, but really the question I have is you said that you were drafting this, you drafted it by mistake. How did you screw this up so much that it really meant something completely different? Like this is not a typo. This is not a missing comma. This is something very big that you then tried to present to the Kentucky house. Yeah, I mean, this is one of those things where you just make the argument. Well, autofill must have un autofilled it. Must have, I, I must have hit the the, the alt delete or something. Uh, it or was supposed AI. to be just, there. Or just blame it on AI. Be like, oh, I I wrote this bill via Chat GPT because I'm an idiot, and you know, there we go. Uh, no, I, 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 it sounds to me. I got to be honest. It sounds to me like, oops, someone found out. Now I got to find justification. Now I've got to find out. Now I've got to, I got to save face because uh, someone actually was reading this stuff and I was assured nobody would. And oops, now I'm in trouble. That's what this sounds like. And I think that has been a comment from a lot of folks. I don't know the facts around it at all. I don't know anything about this personal life or where this idea came from. Um, I know that a big thing in Kentucky is that they, when they outlawed abortion in that state, they did not allow carve outs for rape or incest. So if somebody does commit involuntary incest and, you know, rapes a 13 year old first cousin um, and she gets pregnant, she can't have an abortion in Kentucky. And so I wondered initially, like, is this whole, is this, is bringing this up about really about abortion? And I don't know. Yeah. Um, it just seems convenient that this would be the first issue. And it maybe it really is just a very personal issue to him. Maybe it is. Uh, but I, I gotta tell and, and, and I know it sounds terrible and maybe it's just maybe it's just my bias, but I I, I gotta tell you, I thought I thought it was legal in, in Kentucky and places like West Virginia. Maybe it's just too many of the stereotypes that I grew up on and maybe this is a learning moment for me. Uh, and say maybe maybe Kentucky isn't as as well. I'll leave it there. <laughs> let me let, let me stop digging the hole right now. Let's let's move Indeed. along. Uh, let's move along. Uh, evidently, uh, uh, Nikki Haley believes uh, the Republican Party has never. Let me let me let me put this in, in an emphasis on the word never. Uh, the Republican Party has never been racist, but yet she has suffered racism. I know this is somebody whose campaign literally began where she talked about experiencing that kind of racism as she was growing up and what her parents experienced. This is also somebody who, um, you know, her, her daughter just married a, uh, a black man and which would be impossible in, uh, in pre loving V Virginia, you know, era of, you know, there's no such thing as racism. So, um, hell, even Nikki Haley's parents probably couldn't got, couldn't have gotten married, right? So uh, there's there's a very strange problem that I think Nikki Haley has where she seems to 
not know how to answer very simple questions about this issue and and panders to the far right racist wing of the Republicans expecting that somehow she's going to be able to persuade them enough to get their vote. And it's like, dude, those people are never going to vote for you ever, ever, not ever. And so why are you courting their vote? Like, why not just stand up for what you believe in and say, look, you know, we've had horrible moments of racism in the history of the United States, and we still have some issues now that we should be addressing, particularly with my opponent, Ron DeSantis down in Florida, right? I mean, that's a very easy pathway to getting out of that question and then pivoting to attack Ron DeSantis. Yeah. And I don't, you know, I don't even run for president. So there you go. You're welcome, Nikki Haley. Yeah, but it just shows just how bad both both she and Ron DeSantis are at this campaigning thing, especially when you're talking about the national stage. Uh, it, it takes a lot to, to be able to run at this level. And look, I, I was watching you know DeSantis in Iowa on a couple of the stops that they were televising, and, and he is just all around all bad. There's nothing redeeming in his campaigning uh, whatsoever, and she's – you know, as you've said, pandering all over the map, making, you know, kind of making words up because uh, she, she's trying to please everybody to get to just try and and stay around long enough for Trump to fall over. Uh, and I don't think it's going to happen. I don't either. I, I understand what she's doing. It's a very politician thing to do. I just don't think that the Republican Party operates that way anymore. And I don't think that she has really any option here to um try and make nice with people that are gonna hate her come hell or high water um ron DeSantis, i i read it like a while ago but one of my favorite comments from uh i think it was a member of congress who said you know ron DeSantis has no chance in if he runs again in 2028 because he'd have to have a personality transplant and it's like <laughs> that is the perfect characterization yeah. of ron DeSantis's failure maybe um, in 28 he'll shake his wife's hand again uh, maybe, maybe. But, you know, but here's the thing. And this is where, you know, I, I, I'm glad there's not going to be another RNC debate because I didn't pay attention to any of the other ones, as I don't think the majority of Americans did. I, You know, this has been Trump's party. Uh, the Red Hats have already decided this. And what we saw coming out of, out of you know, DeSantis and Haley and uh, who are the rest of the clown car? Well, who, you know, all right. the rest of them, you know, you know, basically, you know, eating each other without going after Trump, without, you know, without acknowledging the fact that, you know, they're the they're the kids table. Um, I'm glad to see it's gone. I'm glad to see it's over. Now, Haley has said she'll she won't participate because Trump's not going to be there. And he, I said from the beginning, he would be stupid to go and debate any one of them because they're 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 not anywhere near the same league. He could only lose. And I remember people said, no, no, he's going to debate. He's never he's never going to debate. I don't even think he'll debate Biden if they, they try and set up. I think he'll weasel find a way to weasel out of that. I think he will, too. Um, and we saw it, you know, whenever he did it last time and and. I mean, who knows if he was licking doorknobs to be able to get out of a debate, but <laughs> but ultimately squirreled his way away from the town hall piece of it. But the I, I think nobody really watches the debates unless they're hardcore into this thing. What people end up watching are the clips from the debates after the fact. So it's just like, this is such a waste of time. Yeah. And CNN keeps holding these stupid town halls and it's just like, stop with the town halls. Oh. And it's mostly Ron DeSantis. And it's just like, stop with the Ron DeSantis and the town halls. Like, and stop not... with the, and stop with the, uh, trying to make Trump, you know, Oh, he's, he's, you know, he, he's done something different. He's not doing anything different. He's the same. He's the same horrible guy he was for four years while he was in the White House. He's the same horrible guy he was for two years running for office in 16, for running for re-election. There's nothing new here. And every time I watch CNN, it's like, oh, you know, yeah, they acknowledge the, the 91 indictments and all that stuff. But, you know, you know, he he did something different. He he was nice. He called he called Ron DeSantis by his name. <laughs> that That's that's by a high bar. Name. Not not Meatball Ron, which yeah. is what he was calling him for a really long time. Uh, or Sanctimonious, Ron de Sanctimonious. Meatball Ron de Sanctimonious. Just run them all together. I was waiting for Van, um, Van Jones to run out there going, now he's presidential. Right, right. Oh, no, this is the moment where he became president. <laughs> oh, maybe, maybe we could... Maybe... 
We can run him through the courtroom uh, as Trump's having his meltdown, uh, which I'm sure you saw yesterday that you, 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 you know, Trump doing his little thing. The judge threatening to throw him out of the courtroom. That that was fun. I mean, uh, he comes fresh off of, of winning Iowa and then right into the courtroom uh, where you got the judge, you know, kind of kind of throwing him in his place. Yeah. So this whole week has been just a complete cluster for Trump in that Eugene Carroll trial. And it's not even really a trial so much as it's a. Um, it's a damages trial, right? This is not about guilt or innocence. This is about a jury deciding how much money he has to give Eugene Carroll. So over and over, the judge keeps explaining that to Trump's lawyers and to Trump. But what he keeps doing is he's pretending to whisper to his lawyer, and then he's just speaking really loudly so that the jury can hear him. And it's so intentional to try and circumvent the rules of the court that the judge just keeps over and over again saying you have to stop doing this and finally lost it before their lunch break on Wednesday when he was just like dude I will throw you out of your courtroom and Trump throws his arms up in the air and he says well yeah yeah you know like he's totally into it and he goes I know you're into it I know that's what you want see I would go the other way uh that's why we've got duct tape <laughs> right. Well, I think, too, this is a perfect opportunity for him to be like, I'm holding you in contempt of court. You're going into the clink and until you come out and publicly apologize before the cameras to the court and to the jury, you get to sit there and think about what you've done. <laughs> <laughs> You're going to the corner. Uh, but right? no, look, I, I think this whole thing is staged again. Everything Trump does, I think, is for the cameras. It's for ratings. Uh, I I. I I believe everything he does is to get attention, uh, you know, and and is and is planned out. This I don't think anything he does is just based off of uh, off of whim at this point. So all of this the shenanigans, the lawyer doing all the the, the nonsense, you know, you, you, look these lawyers they know better. Uh, so I don't think they walk into a courtroom to try and antagonize a judge. They know better. So for, in my view, they're doing it on purpose for a, one reason or another. One, to try and play to the, the jurors and make him look somewhat like the victim in all of this. Two, maybe some kind of a pellet thing down the road. I don't know. But there, there's got to be something here where you're going, yeah, this is all about the, the bread and circus. This is all about the, the dog and pony show. I definitely think that's true for Trump. I don't know that that's necessarily case the case for Alina Haba because she is she has no experience as a trial lawyer. And uh, Joe Tacopina was the one who was presiding over this case. So she's just sort of coming into this incredibly green and it's and it's very clear that she doesn't know court procedure. Just basic things like you stand up when you're speaking to the judge, right? Like that was one of the first things the guy was like, okay. Well, let's talk about the rules of this court. You stand yeah, but up here's and you the thing. speak to me. This is where this is where I'm, I'm talking about. Everyone knows when you address the judge, you stand up. I watch. I saw that on court TV. You know, I've watched that. You every time you see it, you watch it on Law and Order. You know that you're gonna. Nobody who went through law school doesn't know that. So for me, that's something that that they've decided that they're gonna try and get this guy who you you know is a stickler. You've even said the guy's a stickler. So every stickler. little thing that you can do, every little thing that you can needle him with, every little pet peeve you can trip over is something to influence his decision to make him mad. To go see, look, he was just mad at us because you know whatever. I, I, or, or, or do you think I'm just giving Trump too much credit, falling into the CNN trap of, of giving him too much credit for being too smart? Well, I do think that Trump is absolutely that way. I don't know that Haba necessarily is. I think she's putting on a show for him hmm. in terms of the things that she's saying and the way that she's treating E. Jean Carroll whenever she did the cross-examination. Um, but these little things, um, I think it just humiliates her. You know, this, these are not things where, you know, I don't know how you get up in, in front of a crowd of people and being like, the judge got mad at us because we wouldn't stand up to address him. You know, like, that's just not, that's not a good campaign slogan, right? Like, I don't know why anybody would care. Um, and I think, I, I do think that he's intentionally in trying to antagonize the judge. Um, my favorite point, though, um, where I don't think it was intentional was that when they were trying to pick the jury, um, the judge asked the the crowd of potential jurors, how many of you believe that the 2020 election was fake? And from the audience, Trump raised his 
And I was like, oh, honey. <laughs> Bless your heart. Bless your little heart. You're not on the jury. <laughs> <laughs> it's just those little moments that you're just like, wow, that happened. <laughs> and <laughs> because he, that's. And there's a chance you know, he, that guy's going to be president. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so I, I think. I mean, obviously, he's been throwing a fit about the fact that, oh, he loves his mother-in-law so much that he's mad he can't be at the trial um, during the funeral or something like that. And the thing is, is this whole trial unfolded over a course of several weeks last year, and he didn't go to a single one of them. And on so on Truth Social, he blamed it on Joe Tacopini, his old lawyer, and said, well, they they told me it would be beneath me if I went to it. And it's like, so really, you're you're basically controlled by your lawyers. Since when has that ever happened? <laughs> uh, so so when does this wrap up? When are we done with this clown show? Because look, yeah, I'm sure that the next one is coming very soon. And as I've been seeing on social media, there are a bunch of people saying that you know he's already uh, you know committed. You know, he's already defamed Eugene Carroll again. So you know she evidently there's the potential of bringing another one of these. This could just be the you know, a perpetual motion kind of thing going on and on and on, couldn't it? It could. And um, Eugene Carroll's uh, lawyer has has basically said if um, if he decides that he's going to do this, cruelty will be make him less wealthy is the way she put it. And I thought that was a great way of, of saying it. Um, but I think like there's no court on Friday for this court um, because he wasn't in court on Thursday. I think they're going to try and wrap things up on Monday. Um, he may speak, he may not, nobody really knows. It could be this thing where he comes in and pretends like he's going to, and then all of a sudden at the last minute, he's like, no, I won't do it. Try and be dramatic. Yeah. As um, my grandfather always said, you have the right to remain silent. You should probably use it. Indeed. <laughs> you should probably use that one. Uh, just, just throwing that out there. Um, so have you been following some of the, the comments that the lawyers are making that this is having a toll on him? Uh, that, you know, you, it seems like they're trying to lower the bar a little bit uh, for, you know, you know his his uh, his getting out and campaigning, maybe even for some health issues. Uh, are you are you getting a sense of, of that bar lowering like I am? It's interesting because I don't know if that is intentional or if it's just sort of happened um, because people have seen him. You know, he's showing up to these these um court trials and you know of course he's got his orange makeup on but the lighting is really terrible and he just looks so bad he does look bad um like his his skin just looks really pasty and it's always been very porous you know like large pores um but he just looks really really terrible and these moments where he's you know raising his hands like he's he's a juror right like <laughs> there are these very strange things that he does or things that he says where you know they talk about joe biden maybe not being with it and you're like have you seen this guy yeah did you see some of the speeches out of iowa uh yeah wow that was bonkers that was and i mean i i think he's he, we're used to him rambling right um and i think one of the major reasons that he's spending more time in court rather than you know on the stump and in these these rallies is because he is able to sort of get all of this free media attention and get these get his people all riled up and angry about it without actually putting forth any yep. effort or attention or having to address a, a huge crowd of people. And he looks like the victim. You know, at the end of the day, yes. you know, he he I think he's betting the, the the farm on if he can look like the victim in all of this, if he can look like the one that's being persecuted, if he can be the martyr, uh, he'll do well. Uh, but I got to tell you, when he, he was telling people in Iowa, you know, if you're sick, just go vote. And if you die, well, you know, then, well, at least you voted first. It's like, dude, you, you realize that you have a whole general election. You got to get there, too. Right. <laughs> um, but I think that the thing is, too, you know, people really, especially Democrats, really harp on the the polling numbers for Biden and people are clutching at their pearls and fainting on couches and all of the above worried about how things are going. And I think the major difference here is that you haven't had Trump on the stump the way that he normally is. And the second he starts talking more and more and more and people start paying more attention, I think the more you'll see his numbers dwindle because people are going to be like, 
what is wrong with him? For right? Lips. It's going to be, it, and it has become very obvious that that he is w- way worse than he was when he left office. There is he he is older and slower and you know not as quick and certainly not as and interesting. Much, much much angrier. Yes. Uh, retribution, yes. revenge. That's what's on the top of the mind. Uh, and that's all he's got to run on. There's there's no policy. There's no, hey, how we're going to move the country forward. It's all about him and all about him getting getting his his pound of flesh. Uh, but we'll see how this plays out. But, Sarah, as always, great reporting. Hope folks take a look at the website, rawstory.com. I'll look up Sarah Burris, and you will find we'll put some stuff out so you can take a look at that. But, Sarah, as always, appreciate the time. Great stuff. Thank you so much. Have a good week. Our good friend, Sarah Burris. Want to hear your thoughts? Email me, rick at thericksmithshow.com. Going to take a quick break. Right back after this. Stick around. You're listening to The Rick Smith Show. We are AFGE, the American Federation of Government Employees. We represent 700,000 federal and D.C. government workers who are the vital threads of the fabric of American life. We support our nation's military. We take care of our nation's veterans. We protect our nation's borders. We respond to our nation's crises and natural disasters. We provide services to our nation's seniors. The American Federation of Government Employees. We work for America. You're listening to The Rick Smith Show, where working people come to talk. So as we've been talking about this week, uh, uh, they're in uh, Switzerland. They're having their little powwow in Davos. And you know, during this week of uh, our global elites, the politicians, the business folks all coming together, figuring out, hey, how are we going to solve the world's problems and have global cap- stakeholder capitalism take hold? Uh, has, hasn't worked thus far. Uh, the group Oxfam uh, company comes out with some some interesting little tidbits, some interesting little uh, little factoids. You know, like you know, five people uh, having their their wealth you know more than you know increase more than I don't know, like the bottom what was it uh, five billion people. I mean, it's just it's just crazy the amount of wealth in the hands of such a few people. And now you see this uh, this this report coming out saying that in the next couple of years we're going to have the first trillionaire. And I love the story over at Rolling Stone uh, that came out and said, "You think billionaires suck? Oh, just you wait, wait till you get a you get the trillionaires." And and seriously, this is where you go. How much is enough? And I've had this conversation. You know, Got to be oh, I don't know. Let's say a thousand times. And it's usually with working people who are you know, just able to make ends meet. They're just getting by. And you go, how much is enough? How much do these 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 ultra wealthy folks need? And I, I, I always answer it by going um, more. They always want more. There's never enough. You know, the, the, the CEO of Caterpillar was once quoted as saying, you know, when asked that question, how much is how much how much do you want? And more, you know, the next nickel, the next quarter. These are the people who want to, you know, squeeze the quarter till the eagle screams. And and of course, more for them, less for everybody else. And what we've seen over the last several decades is a government that clearly, clearly is in the in the pocket of of the very wealthy uh, through policy, through through, uh, you know, the work that they do. And, you know, it goes back to something, you know, my high school government teacher always said, you know, government decides who gets what. And are we surprised that we're not getting the things that we need in the working class? Are we surprised by what's happened? And the answer clearly is no. So let me ask the simple question. Once we get the first trillionaire, will we then start coming around to the idea, as I've been saying, we've got to go back to the good socialist president, Dwight David Eisenhower's tax code? where we need to start taxing these people at 92% uh, at over a certain point where we need a progressive tax code to where we don't have trillionaires. Maybe we do that now. Maybe we get ahead of the curve. Maybe we say, no, 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 no. Billionaires are bad enough. You know, it's bad enough that we've got Elon Musk and Jeff Bezos. It's bad enough 
Can you imagine a me- the megalon? Can you imagine the maniac that would come out of out of a trillionaire? Maybe we should start doing something now. Want to hear your thoughts? Email me, Rick at the RickSmithShow.com. Miss any of the show? Podcast. You've been listening to the Rick Smith Show. Email Rick. Email Rick at Rick at the RickSmithShow.com. Until next time, this has been the Rick Smith Show, where working people come to talk. At Parker, our purpose is simple. We want to make the world a better place by working more efficiently, by using more sustainable practices, by developing better technologies. We keep moving forward. With each new idea, innovation, and partnership, we're one step closer to fulfilling our purpose every single day. To find out more, Visit parker.com slash purpose. Parker, engineering your success. What's so special about Hero Bread's soft, fluffy, and delicious breads, buns, and tortillas? Hero Bread serves up 0 to 1 grams of net carbs, 5 to 11 grams of protein, and high fiber in every delicious serving. Made with natural ingredients, Hero Bread supports gut health, promotes weight management, and helps maintain blood sugar. Hero also drops other limited edition ultra-low net carb goodies like rich, flaky croissants and buttery brioche slider rolls. Head to Hero.co to shop today.